Yes, I used the word crisp. I don't know why. Maybe uh, I do like a really crispy potato chip. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so today, yeah, it's, I just want to be like uh, to the point today. I've had this running thesis of uh, theme, if you will, running through my heart, running through my head a lot. And it's not complete. It's not. It's really uh, coming together, though, and I just wanted to like give you guys a good good bite out of it today. But the scripture we're going to use today is out of Luke. So if you want to turn to that, Luke chapter 17. It's the third gospel of the New Testament. <clears throat> Luke was a physician, and he also wrote the book of Acts, and uh, quite a historian. So Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. One day, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? I will preface this statement with uh, their view, their mind, and their vision was uh, they were waiting for the Messiah to come, to come in and to literally rule, literally wipe out the ruling government that's there, and he would come in and take their place, and then there would be a kingdom that would rule uh, you know, and instead, the Israelites, the Jewish people. So this is what their question was. This is, what they were, this is what they were asking him. And Jesus replied in verse 21, The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. There are some translations that said, the kingdom of God is within you. But here, he's speaking to the Pharisees. So we know as Christians we receive that kingdom of God in us, but he's speaking to the Pharisees saying the kingdom of God is right here. You're looking at it. You're looking at actually the king of that kingdom of God. But he makes this interesting statement. He says an invisible kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom. So that's what I want to talk about today, the invisible kingdom, the sovereignty of God, and uh, a little bit of history, if you will. <clears throat> We have um, this two kingdoms going on here, the kingdom of man and with all these uh, history that we can trace back for a long, almost 30 centuries, and pre-Christ. And, uh, and then we have this kingdom of God being established. But Jesus here is showing up as the, basically the uncoronated king. They wanted to coronate him. They wanted to make him king. But he just came, and he was born in a stable. And he received a few gifts, but he was very, very low-key, very, very humble. The king, not only the king, but the, the creator of the universe, came in this real simple way on earth. And he speaks of this invisible kingdom, but here's Jesus, the visible manifestation of God. In man form, but he is not invisible anymore. Prior to this, God was always speaking and using uh, the burning bush, if you will, or the miracles, the cloud during the day and the fire at night as they led him out of Egypt. He was using all these things, but never really saw a physical manifestation of God. Moses came close, but even he couldn't see the full glory of who God was. So <clears throat> here's the, uh, let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. 
This is a couple chapters before Isaiah 42, a famous chapter. But Isaiah 40, starting in the verse 12. This is what the sovereignty of God looks like. <coughs> Who is equal to me? Who else has hold the, held the oceans in his hands? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? And who else knows the weight of the earth? Or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him about what is right or show him the path of justice? Uh, the answer is resounding no. So here we go. This is, this is the sovereignty of God. So any questions? <laughs> this kind of sums it up. Now there's tons of passages talking about the sovereignty of God, especially in Psalm 33. We have David saying here, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created, and he breathed the word. And all the stars were born, and he assigned the sea as boundaries, and locked the oceans and vast reservoirs. Let the whole world hear the Lord, I'm sorry, fear the Lord, and let everyone stand in awe of him. For even he spoke, the world began. I'm sorry, for when he, when he spoke, the world began. He spoke, there it was. It appeared at his command. Isn't that awesome? So we have this sovereign God who speaks, who ushers in the very physical nature of this world, the very physical laws. Everything that's in order is because he spoke it into place. Now, sin has messed it up, but the working order of the world, the universe, is still going as he has ordered it. Here's one more passage in 1 Chronicles 29. When's the last time you guys read out of Chronicles? I, I admit, I rarely ever read this book. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, David again, he praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. And he said, O Lord, the God of our ancestors, ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours. O Lord, and this is your kingdom, we adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone. For you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand. And of your discretion, people are made great and given strength. Mm, that's awesome. So here we have the sovereignty of God and his kingdom being established. But as we see, if any... Uh, but he's interested in history, kingdoms of man would rise and be uh, gather more territory and gather more land, and then it would inevitably fall because another strong kingdom came in and wanted that land. They rise and fall, and in a way, you see a trend for this key phrase, for power. It's a trend for power. It's a trend for control. It's a trend to say, we're going to come in, and now tribute is going to come to us. And there are you know, many different ways. One was, you are killed off if you're not one of us. Another one was, we'll let you live the way you want, but you've got to pay us taxes. You've got to pay us to, to survive. Otherwise, we will wipe you out. 
There were several different various forms. And, you know, Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, was so uh, crucial to the development of man throughout history. You know, you go all the way back to the Sumer people who had the cuneiform writing with the very beginning of taking language and writing it down. And then you have all these empires, starting from the oldest, the Akkadian, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Hittites, to the Egyptians, to the Cushites, and the uh, Carthaginians, and the uh, Achaemenid Empire. Hard words. But all these empires had different various empires in the middle, little and small. And then here you have this little piece of land, right there next to the Mediterranean Sea, just over here from Egypt, and I'm sorry, to the left of Egypt, just to the left of Persia, which is Iran today, and just south of Turkey, which was all the northern tribes and stuff like that. And you got this little piece of land. And when God showed up as the visible manifestation of who he is. Amen. Then, of course, right there, a little before Jesus, after Jesus, you got the Rome. Rome came in, they ruled for 1,500 years. In fact, they were the longest, just about the longest ruling empire at the time. And uh, God had already, prior to any of this happening, God had already established himself as the ruler of the world. He doesn't need to tell anybody that he's king of the world. He's king. He is the ruler of the world. But what has not been established yet is what the invisible kingdom, the invisible kingdom establishing its rule on here on earth. But it's vastly different from man's attempt to rule and reign on earth. And I hope you guys see that. The invisible kingdom right here, when Jesus came, died, resurrected, and the beginnings of the church started, the invisible kingdom moved rapidly. I mean, it moved fast. And I can go into all the things of why God picked this time, why it was just a great time to pick, to come into the world. You know, the, the roads, the Roman uh, Empire created this ability to you know, spread languages. It was insane. It was an awesome, awesome time in history. But this invisible kingdom moved rapidly. For a good 300 years, it was growing and growing and spotting up into northern Africa and far out into Asia, and it just exploded from that time of Jesus, of Jesus coming. And then around this time in the 400s, 5th century, uh, just prior to the 5th century, we got the 4th century, we have the visible kingdom arose. And right around this time too, sorry, we have Aristotle and Plato, two key figures of philosophy that brought us almost everything that we have today. And Aristotle's position was, to find out what we need to do, we need to look at God. God is the one that gives us identity. Plato was more, no, we can just look at nature. And he was pointing, and it's that famous painting where Aristotle's pointing up and Plato's pointing down. Each one had their own viewpoint of how we can view the world. But right around this time, uh, we have the church rise and become this enormous, very powerful, visible kingdom. And I wonder why I put this note way here when I should have put it right there. So I'm going to say it now. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that whenever a kingdom of God becomes visible, it languishes. It turns stale. It turns control. It can turns into power. But the invisible kingdom prior to this didn't go in to take over a land. 
didn't go over and say, Macedonia is now under the rule of God. They didn't go into North Africa and say, now you are under the rule of God. You must submit yourself and become our citizens. It was invisible. It moved and reigned in the spirit and took control without shedding any blood. The blood was shed persecuting the Christians, but the Christians weren't going around shedding any blood. They were just bringing the communion to people and sharing the gospel. That was all they were doing. So right around this time, we had this visible kingdom, the Catholic Roman Catholic Church. Now, this is not a, a chastisement in Roman Catholic Church. I'm just giving history. At this time, it rises up, and for a thousand years, it rules and reigns, and the church just languishes. It just languishes. It goes, they call it the Dark Ages. They call it the Middle Ages. Everything just kind of slowed down, like the invisible kingdom was moving super fast, and then it just kind of slowed down. And there was little pockets of, obviously, God still moving, but nothing in a large, grand scale. Now, kings rose, and then the king would be the ruler, and then the next king would come in, and then, of course, you had many different kings in different areas, and battles, and wars, and then, you know, you had the crusades, and there was another bloody battle by the Christians. People love to bring that up. Well, the Christians were in the crusades. All you got to say to him, it was in the 1400s. <laughs> that you're still upset about that? <laughs> Give me a break. Um, so they, they had the crusades. And it was just an awful, horrible time. Not alone no medicine, which you know, resulted in the Black Plague. It was a very, very, very tough time in human history. But then you, um, you realize that power, having power, uh, you see it today. You see it every time. Whenever you have absolute power and total authority without citizens' consent, it becomes very hard and unreasonable. Nobody could go to the church that day and say, you guys are making it so hard for me. I don't know how to be a Christian. I don't know how to serve and follow God. you got to help me out. Too bad. Too bad. Just, you know, buy a couple of, uh, what do they call it, indulgences, you know, and then, you know, you won't go into purgatory, and, you know, it was just messed up time. So it's very powerful and very unreasonable. And then, of course, we get in the 1400 into the 1500, we get the age of exploration. And the man's world began to expand. Wow, it just used to be all of this European continent, but we have other lands outside, and that was very crucial, too. It allowed people to realize there's more to this world. And it helped uh, Copernicus, it helped Galileo, it helped all those guys see a world that they saw in the Bible, God created a world, become the real manifestation. And so then, of course, we get into uh, the Reformation. And we get the 95 Thesis by Martin Luther, a monk, a German monk, and uh, that was crucial, and that began that Protestant Reformation. And they finally railed against the church and said, you know what? We don't need to buy indulgences. We don't need to earn our way into the kingdom. It's not about works and trying to be pious and a good person. God gave us grace. He gave us grace to be able to get into there. And this whole uh, revolt, bloody revolt against the church, demanded an adherent, adherent to the scripture to the word and to the scripture. And so we have the people like, uh, uh, what are these guys' names? Zwingli, uh, Luther, uh, Wesley, Calvin, Tyndale. Tyndale was crew killed 
in an awful manner, and, and uh, many others, all just took this gospel and just went out and transformed the European Western civilization at the time. And it's interesting, when you have the Reformation exploded, you also had the Enlightenment, you know, this Renaissance area of art and sculpture and all this stuff. Well, the, everywhere you saw where the Enlightenment went, culture languished, culture suffered. Because the Enlightenment was, man has these creative powers and we're just so awesome and we can come to know and we can have logic and they would just sit and amongst themselves and they were the intellectual elite and it was the Enlightenment. And, but it was all man, it was all man-centered. But the Reformation, when that exploded, it was all God-centered. And then when that exploded and everywhere the Reformation went, especially into the Americas, culture thrived. Culture ex, you know, exploded and grew. Uh, it was a fascinating, unquestionable part of history that someone, you know, if anybody has trouble with that, has to look at history and see that. So anyways, and also in the 15th century, another crucial time, you get the Gutenberg Press. So now we can, you had your Bible up here. Now we have this Bible in the, in the, in the hands of people in the language that they can read. Can you imagine becoming, you know, you, well, you wouldn't become a, uh, a, a Catholic. You just were. You had to be. But as you can imagine, and then they're saying, uh, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can read. Just come to church and, you know, we'll tell you what the Bible says. You know, it's insane. There was just, there was illiteracy was rampant, you know, and they just couldn't read this old-fashioned Latin. So the Gutenberg Press came along, and that upended the power, too. There was this power structure of very few could understand the Bible. Now anybody could understand the Bible. No, no fighting, no coming in and taking territory. So this invisible kingdom came alive again. This invisible kingdom just spread and, and exploded. It was almost like it was hibernation, and then it came out. So it sparked this truth that got into the hands of the people. And at the same time, uh, they were being set free from the prisons and the shackles of working, working to earn into the kingdom. And then things move really rapidly. We get into the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, and we get uh, Whitefield, George Whitefield, a famous uh, evangelist. He went all the different churches, and then eventually went over into Americas. And he made this famous phrase after visiting America. He said, it is no wonder that the people here are so impoverished in the knowledge of Christ because everywhere I go, I see dead preachers speaking to dead people. And that was the difference. Whitefield just had this wakening knowledge of who God was. And so when he came to preach, the people just ate it up. They came alive. They were like, what? What is this God that I never knew? I was going to church, and I was being pious, and I was being good. And so even in the uh, Americas, it was languishing. It was starting to suffer. But God saw to it that it would have another quick, uh, another reformation. There's four different waves of reformation. And this, many say, is the precursor for the revolution, for the Declaration of Independence, and for writing the Constitution. All these guys were steeped in this education of what God was and why that mattered, and Aristotle and St. Augustine, another great name. So have you noticed when a religious institution becomes visible, I'm going to say it again, it languishes, but the individual kingdom thrives. 
So you got guys like Whitefield, Wesley, and Edwards, and they focus. People don't really understand this, but they weren't just getting up there and saying, hey, you know, there's this new gospel. They were very specific in their message. And their message was the concept of being a new creature. That was their concept. And the fact that you could have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, not through man, not through a preacher, not through a priest. You could go to God and have a, whole, a spiritual relationship with God because you had become a new creature. You know, when I was young and I learned this new creature, so I thought it was kind of a new thing. But they were getting this back in the 17th century. It was this new thing, and it was a revival of the early invisible church coming from the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century, right after Jesus. It's a revival of that knowledge, and that knowledge, as Jesus says, the truth will what? Set you free. It will free you. This new creation... This is, this is their message. This is what they were giving the message for the revival. This new creation is given the gift of faith. In Ephesians 2.8, we see that faith is a gift. And what is faith? The substance of all things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. Unseen. What is unseen? The invisible kingdom. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. Faith is the foundation, the assurance, the substance, the confidence of things not seen in the invisible realm of God. In terms of faith, what a person can see with the eyes are more likely to frighten them. This was their message. They're like, why would God give you all that stuff to see with your natural eyes? It would freak you out. Didn't it freak out the Israelites? They were in shuddering fear at the mountain when Moses was up there. They were freaking out. This is not the gospel. The gospel is you have faith to see in the spirit, the invisible kingdom. Now you can understand it. Now you know what it is. It's the uh, transformation of being a new creature. It is a gift because we did not have real spiritual faith until God began to call us. It is a gift because by his mighty miracle, God opened our minds to enable us to understand his word so that we can process the evidence and hear from his word and ask and see the invisible kingdom at work. Not just see the invisible kingdom, you see it working. You see it happening. I, I have friends in Africa uh, are posting on Facebook doing amazing stuff. I have this friend in Pittsburgh. He's doing amazing stuff. This visible kingdom, I mean, this invisible kingdom is becoming visible. And I mean like he is getting people healed, saved, uh, Muslims. He has a unreal number of Muslims coming to the faith. It's insane. God is doing something. So this word of God and this invisible kingdom is at work. At the same time, I think of... Uh, Oh, shoot, what's his name? The new guy in Star Wars, uh, the new emperor. Snoke. Was, for a second there, I would have to look at Natty, and she would tell me. Um, he says, he does that chuckle, and he goes, yes, yes. The dark, whenever the dark rises, light rises to meet it, you know? And I was like, that's kind of true, you know? God's never, ever going to let the dark rise above the light. It's just, he, he's always going to provide that ability. And I know we have the end times and stuff like that, but still. So 
at this time with this Reformation change and, and uh, God is moving, of course, the enemy comes in. And it was already there prior to this, but I'm going to focus on this one part so I don't bore you guys with history. Uh, 18, 1887 or 57 or six, somewhere around there, it's not beside the point. In the late 1800s, Charles Darwin comes on the scene. And the reason why this is such a crucial piece is because if the enemy can get us to be fearful of the Bible, then we're going to have to doubt a lot of things. We're going to have to doubt a lot of things. And Darwin, I truly believe he didn't mean to do this. Don't, I'm not going to paint him in this bad light. But he wrote this book, The Origin of Species where evolution explains everything, and we can find it all in the evidence of the fossil record and blah, blah, blah. What this did was it created this shift in the church because the church was growing and growing and growing and becoming saved and growing, but at the same time were not really grounded in what they knew. There was a huge group that didn't know what they knew. So moving into the early 1900s, there became this rising ridicule of you super, superstitious people. You know, you believe the, the Earth was created in the seven days. Science doesn't show us that, so you guys are just believing a folk tale. Noah, the ark, really? He put all the animals on one boat, and then uh, you know, flood came, and then they came down. I mean, really? He was able to you know, get the, the most dangerous creatures ever and get them on the boat. I heard one person said, why did it have to be full grown? He could have gotten a little kitten tiger and a little boy tiger. That's a good point. Uh, but anyways, all these things they began to ridicule. Uh, it eventually led to, where did I write that? Okay, so eventually went from, went from seeing the invisible kingdom move and, and hand at work to seeing is believing. I got to see it. And I don't see it, so therefore, it's not true. That's what happened. That's what happened. And for Christians, it was very hard for us to fight that because all we had was, you just got to have faith. And then the other side would say, oh, so you're just saying blind faith. So I'm just going to blindly believe a God, you know, created the universe and did all this stuff. Uh, it's ridiculous. You guys are just, you know, uh, it got bad. It got pretty bad. You know, we're dumb. We're backward. We're old-fashioned, you know. Uh, whatever. It, it got pretty bad to where our faith became important to us, but we had to keep it at home. Faith is a private thing, a personal thing, you know, and now I'm in, in the 1900s where things move very rapidly. And uh, that's what happened. Maybe we got removed from the public square, it got removed from schools. Um, incidentally, 1910, they did a, uh, I don't know what they call it, statistical analysis, and there are about 600 million, let's just make it a billion, I can't believe there are only 600 million Christians at the time, roughly. That's how many there were. In the 1980s, 1990s, 3 billion Christians. 3 billion from that point to that point. An insane growth in the church. So I'm saying all this horrible, not horrible, negative stuff that started happening, it was still thriving, still growing. So, you know, who am I to question what God's doing? I, I can't. So faith became private, faith became personal, and uh, we end up happening when we cut ourselves off a culture. 
we became this subculture. You know, Christians had their own music. Christians had their own clothing. You know, Christian, we just became this subculture of being very good Christians, but we just don't know how to defeat these guys. They're, they're real smart. You know, they're evolutionists. They go to, they have PhDs. You know, they, uh, it, you know, we just didn't know how to fight it. But here's a, they're the believers that are, here's the word, rational ones. You ever get called that? You're just being irrational. You're not using reason. You know, you're not using, you know, real true logic and figure things out. So let me drop a truth bomb here that you guys probably, many of you never knew. In the 1980s, prior to that in the 50s, with uh, Fred Hoyle and Francis Crick, but in the 1980s, predominantly among the scientific world, evolutionists, cosmologists, uh, and paleontology, predominantly said, and already knew, but kept it quiet, evolution doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have to come up with a new model. And for 30 years, or the late 80s when this happened, 30 years later, not a single line of type has been changed in any textbook in any high school or school. When they've known for 30 years. So if anybody comes to you and says, scientists are holy and noble and would never give false data, you tell them that fact. And then they'll find out. They'll find out if they're really, truly, God said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because those with the right motivations. If someone comes to you and asks you a question, here's a little apologetics, asks you a question and say, yeah, well, what about such and such? Or what about who created God? If God created everything, somebody must have created God, right? Find out their motivation first. Why are you asking me that question? What do you mean? Are you truly wanting to know the answer? Or are you just trying to you know, ridicule me? Because I can take the ridicule, I'm just not going to waste my time and try to explain to you what it is. Find out what their motivation is. If you find it, yeah, I truly want to know, convert them. <laughs> Bring them to Jesus. That's your, that's, your, that's your harvest. Bring them in. So for 30 years, they've known this. And in fact, in 2016, three years ago, a top uh, physicist, sorry, I was going to say cosmologist, a top physicist, a consortium of all the top physicists and cosmologists got together in England. And the first one just got up right away and spoke. And, and interestingly, they invited Christian physicists. It was open to anybody. He stood up and said, in light of the recent advancement in DNA, there is no way that intelligence didn't create us. There has to be intelligence. Did you find that in the newspaper? Did you find that online? This is stuff that we have to dig and get and understand because when Paul went to Mars Hill and he preached the gospel and they said, well, what's this God you're talking about? He switched over to apologetics. If you notice that, preach the gospel, but be able to answer those questions. And then if you don't have time to figure out the apologetical side of why things work and why things are, find someone who does. That's the greatest way to do it. Businesses do it. If you don't know the answer, Aubrey, she'll say, I can find someone who can answer that question for you. She does it all the time. Now, she doesn't because she's amazing and she knows everything. <laughs> but, you know, she literally has people calling her. How do I do this? So, and then, you know, and there's an example right there. If she took the time to learn it, so now she's ready to answer any question, any question. Here's another one. 
and God put this on my heart to share today. So I apologize if this is just boring. If someone says to you, what you're doing and saying is unreasonable, it's unreasonable to believe that there's a God, you have to ask him, are you making a truth claim? A truth claim means it's transcendent. It's true for everybody. It's not just true for me, it's what's true for you, it's true for you. It's transcendent. I like strong coffee, she likes tea. That's, that's the difference. It's not a transcendent truth, it's a personal truth. But a true claim of transcendent says, you are calling me unreasonable. Okay, what do you believe? I believe that we are just, there's only natural, no super spiritual. Okay, so you are a natural, biological robot with just neurons firing out of survival mode became this person is standing here asking me that question, right? They have to, they have to agree with you. Then how are you, dare you make a true claim? How can you trust your claim if you came from just biological soup? You can't. They cannot make any accusation against you. I can make an accusation because I believe in a transcendent being who made the law of logic, who made the law of reason, who made the law of rationality. So I can say I am being completely reasonable by saying God does exist. Is that really simple? Yeah. Simple to understand? Yeah. A robot can never come up to me and say and give me some kind of philosophical truth because it was created. It was created. It can only do what the operating system called it to do. My operating system is Android, and it can only do what the operation system told me. I know Nick is an Apple guy. Only Apple operating system can work with his phone. It cannot operate outside of that system. It did in Terminator, <laughs> Skynet, but that's different. It can only remain within its system. I can remain outside the system. I can have choose, choice, free will, and do what I want, but I'm still within the realm of God's creation. That makes sense? That is a truth. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know any of the other cosmological stuff, although I encourage you to. It's fascinating. Uh, the idea of the biological you know, truths, just that truth alone, should at least get them to question their positioning. So now your faith not just become a true, real relationship with God, which is crucial, crucial, but your faith is also... I got some stuff, and I'm not just an unreasonable, irrational person for believing what I believe in. Amen? Amen. So, will we continue? Let me uh, back up here. And I'm almost done. Truth cannot be quenched. It cannot be silenced. It cannot be killed off. It can go in dormancy. It can go into a little bit of hibernation. But the truth will always come out. And it can be twisted all the time. You know, the Bible gives us all kinds of warnings, so look and be careful for the wolf in sheep's clothing who will try to twist that truth. <clears throat> so it, this is our challenge today. Will we divorce ourselves from culture and sacrifice this gift that God has given us? And I, I didn't add here, I'm sorry, the gift of rationality, the gift of logic, the gift of being able to create you know, the phone I just showed, we created that. That's fascinating. We have the ability to create code, 01011011, you know, all those letters, 
to get the things to work. And we just type on a keyboard and there it is. You know, this is fascinating. But you know what no person can do? Is create DNA. Do you know how many lines of code are in DNA? And just one protein, a couple billion. Then, not only a couple billion, it's not just two letters, uh, two numbers, sorry, 010101. It's seven letters and sometimes more. It's like saying you know, a Scrabble game and you just dump it on the ground and it, it will automatically arrange into the United States of America, you know, all the letters. If you want to say it's chance. It's insane. So I'm bringing up all this with uh, the revival of J.P. Moreland, uh, Stephen Meyer, uh, Alvin Platenga, Morehouse. All these guys are leaders in their field. Michael Behe are leaders in their field in the scientific world who are out there every day sharing what they have learned about the DNA and the beginning of the universe and all that stuff. We are on the cups, I truly believe this, on the cups of another reformation. We are. If you starve, uh, she's an animal, if you starve an animal enough, and you just starve them and starve them, and they're just, just getting a little to eat, but they're not enough to be nourished and full, and then you have Luther and you have Whitefield come in and just bring that true gospel of life and liberty and the pursuit of, no, you, and the freedom, the, the people will just suck it up. Now, I am not blind to the fact that culture is, is doing, plugging in their ears and not wanting to listen. They're uh, doing all they can. Uh, uh, Nick uses the term raving banshees. I mean, they are just fanatic. I mean, just awfully ugly. But at the same time, I find it's a blessing that they're showing their true colors and being so ugly because there's a lot of reasonable people out there who thought they were on the right side and now realizing they don't want to be on that side and there's our harvest. There's our harvest. There's a huge chunk of people that don't want to be over there, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where to go. They've been you know, brainwashed, but now they're eating the red pill of the matrix, and they're realizing there's something, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. All you got to do is tell the culture, has secularism worked without God? Are schools getting better? Are kids getting better? Are they doing suicide less? Are they doing drugs less? Is there, are there less un, uh, unplanned pregnancies? Tell me. Uh, you tell me. You know, you got to challenge the culture and get them to come to their senses and then give them the gospel. This whole thing about hiding your faith and keeping it personal and keeping it private is not good. It's bad. It all does is just grows from within and we get fat. We just keep getting fatter spiritually. So let's give it. Let's just, you know, share it with the world. So here in Colossians 1.16, and I'm going to end with this. Ready? What is the gospel that we need to bring to the world? Here's Paul saying, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Ha-ha! The invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created over all creation. For in him all things were created, with the next line, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. I'm serious. Read this chapter to the world. Read it to them. When they read this, it will be so foreign, so foreign to them. They're like, what are you talking about, you know? And in, but at the same time, it grabs an interest. I've never heard this before. And for some reason, because I'm created in the image of God, it's kind of making sense. It's kind of, I'm kind of seeing something here, a little glimpse of what God might truly be. You know, give me more. You're giving them food and nourishment they've never gotten before. you got to give it to them. So in everything, he might have the supremacy Sovereignty, supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Cannot forget the cross. Too many are just not wanting to talk about it. Once you were, once you were alienated, this is what they need to hear. You were alienated at one time. Once you were alienated, but from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through death to present, your holy, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, when I was in school, my teacher gave us the if-then clause. And it's written at the bottom of the last page of the Bible. Just look for it. If then clause is everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. And it's not, you know, you got to give a little skin in the game before I put some skin in the game. But I don't know. If there's any lack of better definition, that's what it is. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel you heard, and it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Will we, my charge to you today, continue to hold on to that hope and let our faith not just become this personal, private thing that it is only blind faith? You know, <laughs> I'm going to continue talking. I've got to stop. Will we continue to hang on to that faith? Will we do it? You know, Nick, I mean, it's hard. You just want to keep going. <laughs> He's like, I'm with you, man. Uh, if you do, if you do, this is what is required of you. You've got to sacrifice the world. And what I mean by the world is feasting on what the culture provides us. You know, I am indebted to Pastor Nick for giving me more opportunities to preach. Why? Because I have not watched so less TV ever since he did. I mean, I haven't, I'm not even following a show right now. Like, I'm not saying, oh, what's the next episode? I mean, I have not. I have no desire. No desire. Because I can't. I got to bring you guys a word from the Lord. I don't have time for that. You have to stop feasting on the culture. That does not mean separate yourself from the culture. You need to know what's going on. You need to know what the you know, trend is. Don't be backward in, you know, old century. But you've got to be able to say, 
I know what it is that you're talking about, and I know that challenge. And if I don't know that challenge, I'm going to find someone who does. Give them my phone number. You have to be proactive, you know, not reactive. And, you know, always proactive. Practice the gospel. Uh, the, the amount of information, messages, uh, just YouTube is insane how much stuff is on there. You got to weigh it out, but it's insane how much stuff on there, material, books. And I'm like, in the scientific world, go on uh, Kindle, which is what I use. I have a hard time reading out of books. And you can find a plethora of books written by atheists, by atheists who, and agnostics who are writing books saying there has to be intelligence. I don't know what it is. I don't know what to call it, but there has to be. We're on the cups of a renaissance, a reformation. I don't want a renaissance. No man endeavor. Let's take the church back to being an invisible kingdom. You know what I mean? Let's not be this big, visible, whatever name it is. It just, it gets too big. You know, the whole process, the whole point of the government being small was that it would operate better. It still applies to churches. If churches get so big, they just get cumbersome and they can't, you know, we need to be small and light on our feet like David's mighty men. They were small, but they were smart and they were tough and they were physical. So that's what God's calling us. Be hopeful. Be, don't be, this has got to be the end times. You know, we'll just let God do his thing, you know, and just, you know, uh, and binge on Netflix. You got you to gotta be proactive. You need to go, and I'm telling you, you just don't find time for the world. You don't find time to feast on that stuff anymore. You just find time to, like, what is it that God wants to do in my life, wherever I'm doing and whatever I'm doing. And at the very end of the day, if it's only you that grows stronger in the Lord, isn't that worth it? Isn't that worth it? You know what I mean? So, I'm done. Thank you, Jesus. Pastor Dick is going to close, but uh, thank you all, and uh, you come on up and.